This morning, we are going to be focusing our attention on seeking answers to our questions. In particular, seeking answers to our spiritual questions. There's much in the scriptures that are both hard to understand and also hard to believe. Questions can easily arise in our minds. Is the Bible, in fact, true? What do all these things that the Bible teach actually mean for us? The Queen of Sheba had questions concerning all that she had heard about Solomon. Could he really be as wise and wealthy as was reported? She decided that she needed to come and see for herself. So the Queen of Sheba had questions and came to Solomon seeking answers. In the New Testament, Jesus applies this passage to himself and the judgment that will come upon the scribes and Pharisees for their unwillingness to come sincerely to Jesus in seeking his wisdom and teaching. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, which was our call to worship, it states, the Queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So my approach to this text this morning is going to be to draw a series of comparisons to the way that the Queen of Sheba asked questions of Solomon and the way that people asked questions of Jesus. Now, I will give you fair warning. We are going to be looking at a great deal of Scripture this morning, uh, so you're going to have to be turning in your Bibles, and hopefully you can stay with me, but I think the lessons are significant and important. The first thing that we want to note is that the Queen of Sheba came sincerely to test Solomon with difficult questions. The Queen of Sheba came sincerely to test Solomon with difficult questions. If you look at 1 Kings 10.1, it reads, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, that is, that she had heard about all this wisdom that the Lord had given to him, she came to test him with hard questions. The Queen of Sheba traveled a long way. Sheba was in southwest Arabia, present-day Yemen. So she traveled a long way, as is mentioned in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, for it states that she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It speaks of the effort that she put forth and the sincerity of her desire to really know whether or not these things were true that she had heard. The Queen of Sheba came to see how wise Solomon actually was. For it says at the end of verse 1, she came to test him with hard questions. The word for hard questions is often associated with riddles. With riddles. Things that are hard to figure out, hard to solve. And the word for test is to prove. So the Queen of Sheba was seeking proof that Solomon was really as wise as everyone said that he was. So she intentionally 
thought through hard and difficult questions with the intent of finding out how wise Solomon really was. But she came respectfully, for she brought gifts when coming to Solomon, verse 2. She came to Solomon with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. So she came bearing gifts. She was giving homage to Solomon. Uh, She wasn't a skeptic, if you were. She wasn't an agnostic, but she did have questions concerning just how wise Solomon was. She believed he was wise, but could he really be as wise as everyone said that he was? And so we find out that the Queen of Sheba came with all her sincere questions. If you look at verse 2, it says, She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, now we have something new added here. She told him all that was on her mind. She told him all that was on her mind. Once she realized that Solomon truly was as wise as everyone said that he was, that he could answer these difficult questions, then she opened up and asked about those things that she really cared about, those things that she really wanted answers for. No longer to test, but now seeking true wisdom and understanding. The questions that were deep and sincere and real for the queen, perhaps in how to reign, perhaps in how to live, perhaps about God and this wisdom that he had granted to Solomon. She opened up about things that she really cared about. It's well known that often in counseling, when a person comes seeking help, they come with a presenting problem. That is an issue of lesser consequence in which the counselee is trying to determine whether or not the counselor is going to actually provide them the help necessary and what kind of response are they going to get? What kind of temperament is the counselor going to um, demonstrate towards the individual? So they come with a presenting issue, kind of as a test to see how the counselor will respond. And if the counselee is happy with that response, if they find it to be valuable, if they find it to be significant, if they find it to be helpful, then they're willing to talk about the thing that they really want to talk about. They're willing to open up. They're, they're willing to become vulnerable. They're willing to, to share the more intimate, secretive details of their lives because they trust the counselor and they want the counselor's help. That's the rapport that developed between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. So we find out that Solomon answered all her questions in verse 3. Solomon answered all her questions. Uh, Everything that she put before him, not only the hard and difficult things, but also these more intimate questions, the more personal questions. And we find out that Solomon answered all of those questions thoroughly. For it says at the end of verse 3, there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Uh, He wasn't stumped. 
And he was very helpful to her, and he could explain to her in an understandable way the things that she wanted and needed to know. So now we compare the Queen of Sheba's coming to Solomon to test him with the scribes and Pharisees coming to test Jesus. Now here's one of the number of passages that we're going to turn to. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Keep your finger here, we're coming back. But Luke chapter 20. In this contrast, in Luke chapter 20, we find out that the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, not sincerely, but to trip him up. They were laying a trap for Jesus. Now, she came with sincerity. She really wanted to know the truth. Was Solomon really as wise as he said he is? But these individuals aren't coming to Jesus to seek the truth. They are not truly interested in whether or not Jesus is the Son of God and whether or not he truly speaks for God. They're coming to lay a trap for Jesus. Notice verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. In other words, they were looking for a way in which they could arrest Jesus. They were trying to find some kind of charge to level against him that could be used against him in a court of law. Whether that be the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council and their law, or the Roman government and its law. And so they devised what they thought was the perfect question to get Jesus into trouble. So Luke 20, 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the, of the governor. So they wanted to catch him so that they could bring some kind of formal charge against him due to what he said. The question that they asked Jesus feigned a respect for Jesus. For they said in verse 21, so they asked him, teacher, and they preface it with this statement, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now that's a lie. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe that. But that's what they said. All right? they, they lay a foundation. And that is, we know that you teach right. There's no question about that, Jesus. And we know that what you say about God is true. There's no question about that, Jesus. So here's our question, Jesus. Luke 20, 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it right for us as Jews to be paying taxes? And that was a hotted, hot, hotly debated issue in Jesus' day. For there were many rabbis that taught that it was improper for the Jewish people to pay taxes to Rome because they were supporting an evil government, because they were supporting practices that went contrary to the Jewish faith and religion. So the rabbis said, 
You cannot pay taxes to Rome and be a faithful Jew. Now, the problem with that is that it violates the laws of Rome. And so to be teaching publicly that you should not be paying taxes is surmountable to seeking an insurrection, trying to create a rebellion, to overthrow and, and reject the authority of the Roman government. So it was an interesting paradox of how to answer the question. On the one hand, you alienate the Jewish leaders and their teaching. On the other hand, you violate the Roman government and its authority. So Jesus, here's the question, and the thought is, whatever he answers, we got him. Whatever he says, either the Jews are going to be upset with him or the government is going to be upset with him. So here's the question, Jesus. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus answers their question even though that he knew it was a trap, verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. He understood. He, he knew what was going on here. He realized that they weren't seeking the truth, nor were they really believing that he was the son of God and that he spoke the truth. And they really didn't care what the answer was, just they wanted to get him in trouble. Nevertheless, Jesus answered their question completely and perfectly. For it says in verse 24, here's his answer, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. He says, be faithful to Caesar and be faithful to God. Be faithful to Caesar and to be faithful to God. And in that answer, they didn't find anything that could be used to go back to the Jewish people. He's saying, be faithful to God, and they couldn't find anything to accuse him before the government because he's saying, be faithful to Caesar. For there was no contradiction in the mind of Jesus. It was a false dichotomy that the Jewish leaders presented. There wasn't a dichotomy. It was one and the same. But seeing that Jesus was wise and they could not catch him in anything they stopped asking him questions, verse 26. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer. So, so they have to admit that that was pretty shrewd. They have to admit that's not what they were expecting as an answer. And they had to admit that it was right. And so, as a result, they became silent. They said, we've met our match. Uh, we're not going to be asking him any more questions. We are just propping him up rather than tearing him down. But they didn't ask him any more questions because they weren't seeking the truth. Unlike the Queen of Sheba, who, when her questions were answered, then opened up and, and now is willing to, to bear her soul and to ask them the questions that were merely meaningful and important, instead of doing that, they just clammed up. They 
weren't interested in finding out truths about their soul. They weren't interested in finding out truths about heaven. They weren't interested in finding out what he had to say about who the Father was and how one would have access to him. They were only concerned about catching him. And so they became silent. They had nothing else to say and nothing else to ask. Thirdly, back to 1 Kings. We want to look at the Queen of Sheba's response to what she had heard from Solomon. First, she acknowledged what Solomon said was true. 1 Kings 10, verse 6. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. The report was true. Everything I heard about you, it's right. And so now she believes it. She believes it. Having acknowledged that what she heard was true, the next logical step is to believe it. Verse 7, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Verse 7, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. So she goes so far as to say, not only did Everything I hear about you, not only was that true, but it minimized your wisdom and your wealth. The reports didn't do you justice, she says. She was amazed. It says in our text later that she's breathless. She's just aghast at what she's hearing and, and what she's seeing. She says, it's true, and the half hasn't been told me. Now contrast that with the scribes and the high priests that come to Jesus. What do they do when they know that what Jesus said was truly wise and correct about this test case concerning whether or not taxes should be paid to Caesar. Remember, initially, when they came to him, they said concerning Jesus in Luke 20, 21, so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. But when they are confronted with Jesus actually teaching the truth of God, when they are confronted that Jesus actually does speak what is right, unlike the Queen of Sheba, she refuses to believe and trust in Jesus, even though their questions are answered. They don't now accept what they pretended to accept, And that is that he was the Son of God, and he did speak for God. 
Instead, they continued in their unbelief. They continued in their rejection. They were just defeated. But they weren't converted. Application. We need to understand that there are many who come to the Bible and come to God insincerely. Insincerely. That is, they pose as though they are true seekers of wisdom and understanding. They present themselves as individuals who who just want to know the truth. Is the Bible really the Word of God? Even though in the back of their mind, they are convinced it's not. But they like to present themselves as open, as teachable, as willing to be instructed. I would just like to know, is the, is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is his death and resurrection the real means of salvation? Aren't there many, many different ways in which a person can be saved? They are not seeking truth, but have an agenda trying to demonstrate the Bible is not true and that it is untrustworthy. And so they develop hard and difficult questions that they love to ask God's people, trying to find contradictions in the Word of God, trying to find ethical problems in the teaching of Jesus, uh, trying to create emotional pathos in seeking to reject certain teachings and authority of Jesus over us, about free will, etc., etc. They often come thinking they have very difficult questions. And what we need to realize is that you can answer every one of those questions and it still won't convert them. Because it's not really an issue of the intellect. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of wanting to reject the authority of God. It's not wanting Jesus to reign over them. Not wanting to submit to the authority of scriptures. So answering the questions really becomes irrelevant. Because you're never going to persuade them. You're never going to convert them. The best that you can do The best that you can do, and in essence, if you're thinking about it in terms of a debate, the greatest outcome you can hope for is to silence them, or put it in a more crude crude way, shut them up. (laughs) That they get to the place where, this person knows what they're talking about, and and I'm not going to pursue this any, any further. That's a win, if you will. But it's not converting them. It's not converting them. Because they're not really seeking truth. They have an agenda. However, it was not just in what the Queen of Sheba heard, but also what she saw that caused her to believe. Now back to 1 Kings chapter 10. 
1 Kings chapter 10, starting at verse 4. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, which is an interesting statement. First, she had heard about his wisdom, the hard questions. Now it says she saw the wisdom. And you may ask the question, how can you see wisdom? How can wisdom be projected on a screen? What is it that with one's eye, one can tangibly denote that wisdom exists, that this person is a wise person? Well, it tells us in the text, verse 4. The Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon. Now, here are the ways that she saw it. The house that he had built, the house that he had built, the temple. That took a lot of wisdom. The attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered to the house of the Lord. Just seeing the oversight, the trappings, the administrative skills and abilities demonstrated wisdom. So much so that it says in verse 5, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. So wisdom is not limited to our words and knowledge. Wisdom extends to our life's choices and actions. That's extremely important to keep in mind. Wisdom is not limited to words and knowledge. Wisdom extends to one's life choices and actions. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were wise enough to know that what Jesus said was true. But they were not wise enough to submit to his authority and to his truth. So often, wisdom fails in its application of truth, not its comprehension of truth. And that's many times where we fail in our Christian faith. It's not that we don't understand what the Bible says. It's we don't do what the Bible says. That there's that disconnect that exists. There's a verse of scripture that I love because to me it's so picturesque. And it's this, Ecclesiastes 10 verse 3 says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool or stupid. <laughs> Paraphrased, all you have to do is look at some people walk down the road and you can say, that guy's a stupid fool. All right? The fool walks down the middle of the road. The fool walks out in front of a speeding car just wanting to see it squeech and squeal at brakes. A fool takes a baseball bat and crushes mailboxes as he walks down a road. You can look at someone 
and say, they're clueless. They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't understand. They could see, she could see, the wisdom of Solomon. But seeing is very important for us. There is an old adage that says, seeing is believing. And there are many things that we have to take by faith when it comes to the Word of God. Many things that that we have to believe without seeing with our eyes. So how does one have proof of what one cannot see becomes a significant question for us as believers. Well, we find out in the Word of God that there is more than one way to see. There is more than one way to perceive. There is more than one way to test whether or not the things that Jesus says are true. Keep your finger here. Now we're going to go to a different passage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Now, this is an interesting passage. For it involves John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has questions. And these questions are very sincere. These questions are very real. And they are asked in a right spirit. And they are questions that are engendered by doubts and fears. And it's very instructive for us, for we might be surprised that John the Baptist, of all people, would have doubts and fears. But we find that as this passage opens, that John the Baptist is seeking reassurance as to who Jesus really is. He's seeking reassurance as to who Jesus really is. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that he says he is? Now, look at Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 2. Now, when John heard, and this is John the Baptist. Now, when John heard in prison about deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him. So he sent disciples to Jesus because he can't go himself. He's in prison. With this question, are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? The one to come, the Messiah, the Savior. John the Baptist says to the disciples, go ask Jesus if he's the Savior. Or is it somebody else? Now, we might be amazed that John the Baptist would have doubts about Jesus. Now, keep in mind who it is that we're 
talking about when we're talking about John the Baptist. After all, he is the one who publicly proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who should take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus and saw the spirit of the Holy Spirit coming and descending upon him in the form of a dove and heard the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was John the Baptist that said, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It is John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. So it's that person who says to the disciples, go and ask Jesus if he's the Savior or not. Go ask Jesus, is he the one or, or should we be looking for somebody else? Why would John the Baptist ever ask that question? Why would he, of all people, have doubts? How could there be any question in his mind? You want proof? What better than a voice from heaven? So, why is John the Baptist having doubts? Well, look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says, now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples. So, the situation is that John the Baptist is in prison. And he hears what Jesus is doing. You need to understand that John's being in prison is not at all what he anticipated for his life. That was not an event that John the Baptist was expecting. That was totally unforeseen that John the Baptist would be in prison and, in fact, facing a death penalty. So, John could be asking the question, if Jesus is who he says he is, then why am I in prison? If Jesus can do what he says that he can do, then why haven't I been released? If Jesus can perform all these miracles that are being reported, then why can't he overcome Herod? Why can't he loose these bonds? Why can't he set me free? Why am I sitting in prison if Jesus is the Savior, it's not 
what he anticipated. It's not what he thought. And I say to you that the times of doubt come into our hearts and minds when the unexpected happens in our lives. So many times we have a fairy tale outlook as to what it means to be a Christian. So often the gospel is presented to people in that way. One of the most popular ways that there is a program of presenting the gospel is to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. For most people, being in prison is not a wonderful plan. And if they're trusting in a Jesus who's always going to heal them, is always going to be comforting them, is always going to be preserving them in bubble wrap from any hardship or difficulty. Believe me, when those hardships and difficulties come, their, their faith is tested and tested severely. Because it's not at all what they expect them to be. And so they then ask the question, is what I believe true? Is Jesus the one that he says he is? As we work through this passage, it's important to understand that Jesus has no rebuke for John the Baptist, but rather simply reassures John that Jesus is indeed the one. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 4. And Jesus answered them. That's these disciples of John the Baptist that were sent to Jesus with a question, are you the one? So here's Jesus' answer, verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In essence, yes, what you heard about me is true. All these miracles are taking place. Everything is happening just as you heard and just as was expected. Then Jesus states what is the unexpected. Jesus states, though John is in prison, John is blessed of God, verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, our brother Eric Jr. did a wonderful job of introducing the uh, Sermon on the Mount to us this morning and talked about blessedness and very rightly said that blessedness is being favored of God, of being under a place of blessing as opposed to a place of curse. And he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, meaning blessed is the person who doesn't deny their faith in association with Jesus Christ. What he says is a word of comfort to John. John, blessing. It's not about getting released. 
blessing is that God is going to preserve you in your faith. You are blessed because your faith is going to be strong. And John the Baptist is martyred. And John the Baptist remains faithful and true to his commitment to Lord Jesus. He's blessed. And Jesus conveyed an incredibly important truth to John the Baptist. He said, tell them that you see the dead are raised. And John the Baptist, though you are not going to be released from prison, and though you are going to be put to death, you're going to be raised. You're going to be raised. You're going to be at the very right hand of God. God is being gracious to John in sustaining him. And it's part of God's grace and blessing that Jesus responds with such gentleness and with such understanding. It's important for us to keep in mind that Jesus had no problem with the question that John the Baptist raised. And instead of rebuking John the Baptist, Jesus publicly praises John the Baptist. I, I, I want you to see that. There is no remonstrance, there is no rebuke, there is no fault that Jesus finds with John the Baptist in asking this question, even though he knows the answer. For he understands the doubts, he, he understands the uncertainty, he understands the grief, the anguish. He gets it, Jesus does. And instead of finding fault, he praises John the Baptist, which should bring a tremendous relief and joy to us. For notice Matthew eleven seven and following. As they went away, Jesus began to speak the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Is that what you attracted you to, to John the Baptist? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Verse 9, what did you go out to see? He said, a prophet. Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will repair your way before you. John the Baptist is the one that was sent to prepare people to believe in me. The one who's now having doubts about Jesus is the one that Jesus sent to prepare people to believe in Jesus. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now think about that. That's Jesus' commendation of John the Baptist. I tell you truly, there's no one greater than John. Because he's given such an important role. And he occupied that role, he fulfilled that role, he was in prison for that role. John is to be praised. John is to be praised.
And then verse 11. Again, these strange words. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No one greater than John the Baptist. And then he says, the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For we have been given a privilege. We've been given a knowledge. We have been given an insight that is greater than that of John the Baptist. We have better understanding. John the Baptist heard from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How could we be any more blessed than that? We've seen the reality of the claims. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead and buried. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the savior of the world. Application. It is fine to come to Jesus with our sincere questions and doubts. He will not rebuke us. He will not send us away. If John the Baptist is going to have doubts, don't beat yourself up over your doubts. Don't say to yourself, if I was a mature Christian, I should never feel this way, or I should never think such a thing. In times of hardship and difficulty and loneliness, and when life is not turning out the way that you expect, it's easy to doubt. Especially when you start putting your faith in what you think are God's promises that he didn't actually promise, but you were told that he did, but he didn't actually promise those things, it creates tremendous confusion. Don't beat yourself up with doubts, but bring them to Jesus. Own those doubts. Pray to Jesus. Sincerely seek answers from the scriptures, from godly individuals. Try to understand what God is doing and what God has promised. And don't lose sight that we are a blessed people Looking forward to this study and the Beatitudes for we are a blessed people and our brother Eric was absolutely right. These are declarations. You are blessed. So remember when you mourn. Remember when you are sad. Remember when you are persecuted. You're blessed. Don't lose sight of the blessings because you're in prison. Don't lose sight of what God is doing in your life. Don't lose sight of what God is doing in the world. Don't lose sight of your unique and precious relationship that you have to God. Now, I'm out of time. In fact, I'm a little over time. And I'm only two-thirds through. But we're not going to finish. But let me just try to wrap it up with a few concluding statements. First, 
We must realize that there can be different motives in asking spiritual questions. The first motive, which is a good motive, is truly to seek to understand. The second motive, which is bad motive, is not to seek truth, but rather to seek to work against the truth. Obviously, the second is wrong. The second is wrong. The people that are asking questions trying to prove that which is false. But there's nothing wrong with asking questions that are intended to help and strengthen our faith, to to try to better understand our relationship with God. It's fine to come with Jesus with doubts and fears. We can and do need times of reassurance. Perhaps we shouldn't have to, but sometimes we need to. But be assured that God will help us in our time of need, that he won't rebuke us, but he tells us what we need to hear, even as he did with John the Baptist. Third, we need to see how blessed the people are to have access to Jesus and his truth. It's part of what I wasn't able to get to, but she says of Solomon's servants that they are blessed blessed to be in his presence. They're servants. But they're blessed simply because they get to hear the wisdom of Solomon, she says. What a blessing it is to have the word of God, to be in his presence, to have the spiritual answers and the recourse to get more answers. May that blessedness result in our praise in our adoration, in our commitment, as we see what the Queen of Sheba does in response to Jesus that we don't have time to look at. But let us praise our Lord, for he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is, and we can know that for a truth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus, truly the Son of God, truly the one who came into the world to be the savior of all those who believe in him. Lord, help us in our doubts. Reassure us in our faith. Lord, help us to come sincerely and bring to you situations that we do not understand, in which we are forlorn, in which we are miserable, in which we fail to see you at work. Lord, open our eyes, help us to see, help us to understand. We thank you for the promise that you will, and you do not rebuke us. But Lord, you even praise us as your people for our faithfulness, even in the midst of doubts. So Lord, help us to be that. People, perhaps, that have doubts, yet faithful, yet faithful, committed. And that those two ideas are not incongruous. They are not antithetical. They are a reality that we can be faithful, even in doubts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.